Take your Bibles with you this morning. Open back up to Matthew chapter 26. Continuing in this series, the gospel of the kingdom this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 47 through 68. The title of the message is the arrest and trial of Jesus. So we've been spending time here in Matthew 25 and 26 as we've just come out of the garden of Gethsemane. We know Jesus has is there with his disciples. He's gone to pray. The disciples have fallen asleep the three times that he has prayed. As he woke them up the last time, he told them, get up, let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And what we find then is that Jesus is going to be identified by Judas. He's going to be arrested by the crowd that's come out from the chief priest and the Pharisees. Of course, there is a display of his power and of his glory there. Actually, the use of the name I am in the garden. He challenges their cowardice in coming to arrest him in the dark, doing these things in secret. And as we look at the text this morning, we're going to see that he was taken. He was tried illegally before the Jewish leaders. There was nothing that was done legally according to the rules that governed the Sanhedrin and the chief priest in the way that they tried Jesus. And we're going to learn, too, the verdict was already set before they even started questioning him. They had to go and find witnesses and beg witnesses to come to bear false witness because the whole intention of the trial was not to try Jesus, but to condemn him, to find reason to hand him over to the Romans to be put to death. That was the agenda all along. Something that's interesting, too, in studying the text, and I've preached through the trial and the aspects of the trial, I don't know how many times over the course of years of ministry, but something, again, as you read a familiar text and suddenly something stands out to you and the Holy Spirit kind of taps you on the shoulder and says, look there. What we find out in this trial is that they didn't have a very good case. Even trying him illegally, their false witnesses couldn't agree. And when they sent him to Pilate, Pilate said he's innocent. I can't condemn him. Why should I put him to death? He's done nothing wrong. If, if, if this text was an episode of law and order. Dunk, dunk. The DA would have been embarrassed and Jesus would have been set free. We're going to find out, though, why that's not what happened. Something that Jesus says himself that ensures that he will be condemned so that there's no way he can get out of this trial alive. So starting in the first paragraph here, verses 47 through 56, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12, came up, and with him was a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Therefore, how will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. 
But all this has taken place in order that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. As Judas comes into the garden with those sent with him from the scribes, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they're going to discover Jesus. Judas knew where he would have been. This was a familiar place for Jesus to go. He'd been camped out here. He'd prayed here before. Remember, Judas had left before the Lord's Supper was instituted in the upper room. Later, he came looking for him. It's very possible that the reason he needed to give them the signal of a kiss is because there were probably multiple groups of people looking for Jesus because they didn't know exactly where he would be. But Judas had a hunch. He knew Jesus didn't hide his prayer life. And so Judas comes and he kisses Jesus. I love it that Spurgeon says that how often do we see it through the history of the church and the world that those who would betray Christ first kiss him. And it sounds like this. Well, Jesus sure was a good man. He sure was a good teacher. He sure was a godly prophet. But Spurgeon says after that kiss of affirmation of love for Christ, then usually we find the betrayal. Someone to tear down what Jesus said or actually taught or what he really did. Those who would claim to love him and who would kiss him. Please understand that, of course, Judas wasn't sincere in this at all. His intention was to deceive and to betray. And in the kiss, he calls him rabbi. Again, not Lord like the rest of the disciples, but teacher. This is the one. This was the signal that was given. Betraying him, he gave them the sign. Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. And and the instruction is, grab him before he realizes what's happening. Judas thought he was going to surprise Jesus. That's what's hysterical. How many times has Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to be betrayed, turned over to the chief priest, and crucified, and on the third day rise again? This This is what he said. He says it even here. What has been prophesied is going to come to pass. There was no need to think that he was going to flee, to run, to try to get away. You you see, this is not a hesitation that was there moments before in the garden as he prayed, as he trembled, as he grieved, as he groaned. If there's any way, let this cup pass from me. No, he's prayed it three times and he knows the cup is his to take. It's settled in his mind. From this point forward, there is no wavering or questioning from Jesus. There is no more. Take the cup away. Now it is give me the cup so that I can drink it to the point of having to rebuke Peter and the disciples. Why are you trying to stop me from drinking the cup that is mine to drink? This is God's will. The scripture is going to be fulfilled. And so when Judas comes and says, greetings, rabbi, and kisses him. Two things. First, Jesus says, friend. You understand, Jesus knew that Judas was the son of perdition. But he had chosen him to be his disciple. He was chosen for this purpose. And even in the betrayal, even knowing that Judas was lost and lost for eternity, Jesus calls him friend. You understand, there are those who would preach that Jesus doesn't have compassion or love for the lost. Y'all, the Bible says, for God so loved the world. And you try to do whatever gymnastics you want to try to get out of what that verse says. God loves his creation, all of it. The elect he loves, though, with a covenantal love. 
He had compassion on Jerusalem, knowing it was going to be destroyed. He wept over Jerusalem that was going to be destroyed righteously because of their sin. He calls Judas friend. That had to sting Judas, don't you know? But then he says, do what you have come for. The, the phrase can literally be translated, get on with it. Let's go. What are you waiting for? He knew that it was time. Now we're told in Matthew's account that then they came and they were going to seize him. They laid hands on him to seize him. But I want to read John's account for you because each of the gospel writers has a little bit different take on this. The meat of it is all the same, but John includes something before Jesus was seized. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples to the other side of the Kidron Valley, where there was a great garden into which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often gathered there with his disciples. Judas, then having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So he said to them, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way in order that the word which he spoke would be fulfilled. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. You might notice in some translations that when he says, I am he, that he is italicized. It's because Jesus' response was, I am. At that pronunciation, at that declaration, it's as if there is a thunderclap of the glory of God that knocks this crowd back away from Jesus. For but a brief moment, they are completely disoriented. So they, they have to ask again, and he has to ask them again, who are you seeking? And again, he says it, I am. A proclamation of who he is, but also a display of his glory. And it demonstrates to us the truth that he tells to Peter after Peter draws his sword and thinks he can fight the crowd off. It didn't take the disciples to fight them off. The glory of God alone could have done it. Just his spoken word drove them back on their heels. Can you imagine if Jesus had called for the angels to come and to assist? Well, Peter's ahead of him. We don't need angels. He draws his sword. Now, there are those who say, well, why did Peter have a sword? Because Jesus told him to. The disciples asked, and he asked, how many swords do you have? Before they went to the garden, and they said, we have two. And Jesus said, it's enough. Jesus is not anti-sword. And in fact, the statement that he makes to Peter after Peter draws his sword and tells him to put it away is not a pacifistic statement. Peter is going to do what Peter is going to do. He's going to insert himself into the situation and chew half his foot off. He's going to launch at these men to try to protect Jesus. This was his goal. He had sworn all of the rest of them might betray you and might deny you, but not me. I'll die before I do any of that. Matthew doesn't name him, but we know he's named in the other Gospels. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew out his sword, and struck the slave of the high priest. John tells us both that it's Peter and that it's Malchus. And he cuts his ear off. I want you to understand, and, and I, I've actually seen this. People said, well, Peter took that sword and just tried to hack him, tried to cut his ear. No, 
Peter drew that sword like any man ready for action. He drew the sword and he went to cut his head off. He was going to kill Malchus, representative of the high priest, leading this charge before Jesus was going to be taken into custody. Peter was going to go down swinging, taking as many of them with him as he could. Malchus saw it coming and he ducked. The sword caught his ear. It landed on the ground. And Jesus, Jesus immediately brought the scene to a halt. He said to Peter, put your sword back in its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. That, again, that's not a pacifistic statement. That's a statement. Peter, this is not the time. This is not the place. Peter, if you use the sword now, I'm not going to be the only one that dies in the morning. They're going to take you and kill you with me, and it's not time for that yet. So put the sword away. We also know from John's gospel that then Jesus picked up Malchus's ear and healed him. Put it back on. I would imagine Malchus was a changed man after that. He probably had a little bit of a twitch. He who has ears to hear. I wonder if Malchus could at that point. Jesus caring for those who are leading the charge to come and to arrest him without cause. Because Jesus had to die. And his comment to Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A Roman legion was 6,000 troops. Jesus just said, do you not think that I could call on the father and he could send 6,000 angels apiece for all of us in the garden? 72,000 angels like that. I have to wonder, do you, do you think the angels weren't standing ready for his word? But that was not what was to be. Could he have? Yes. Yes, he could have. But but no. He says, how will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? Spurgeon reminds us of this. The sword never helps to establish Christ's kingdom. All that is ever done by it will have to be undone. Brute force will throw down what brute force has built up. You understand, we don't win people to Christ by threatening to kill them. We win people to Christ by dying to ourselves. Not by force, not by the sword. Spurgeon goes on and he says, Jesus thought here more of fulfilling scripture than of being delivered from the hands of wicked men. It was about the scriptures being fulfilled. Why? Because he knew this was God's will. He had surrendered to it just moments before in his prayer. He had to go to the cross. And nothing was going to stop him. Not a disciple with an impetuous sword. Not a crowd. Not a trial that was false and illegal. He was going to be put to death. Because that's what God had determined to do. At that time Jesus said to the crowds. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Think about it. Chapter 21, 22, 23, 24. Jesus was in the temple. In the courtyard, preaching and challenging the Pharisees and the priests. You understand these are the same people that are now coming to him in the garden. He was right there in front of them. In their building. And they didn't raise a finger against him. Why? Because they were scared of the crowds. If, if we take him now in daylight, people are going to see it. People think he's a prophet. They've seen him ride in on a donkey. They've proclaimed him the Messiah. There's going to be a revolt. So we need to do it in the dark. We need to do it when nobody can see. We need to try him as quickly as possible. And we need to dispose of him. All this has taken place in order that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. 
Then all the disciples fled him. They left him alone. This fulfilled the scripture. He had even said this was going to happen. The shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep are going to be scattered. That's what's coming. We can't blame the disciples for this because at this point, what's going to happen is going to happen. Jesus is going to let it happen. He's not going to fight it. And as many of them as they can catch, understand, they were trying to grab everybody else too. They wanted the whole gang. They could have tried them all for following this false Messiah. We know we read the account. Even John Mark was there wrapped in a sheet behind a tree. He had followed them out to the garden and was watching. And a Roman tried to grab him. And he left the sheet in his hand and ran home naked through the streets. They couldn't get away fast enough. Everybody ran. Not all of them ran as far as others will learn that John and Peter hung back just a little and followed on to where he was going to be tried. The rest of them either went back to the upper room or ran wherever they could to try to get away. Can you imagine the thought in the disciples' minds? Jesus had just been arrested. Judas was the betrayer. Now they knew who it was. They'd all asked at the table who it was, if it was them. Now they knew. Jesus had talked about this hour and talked about this hour and talked about this hour and the hour was here and all those disciples wanted a snooze button. This can't be happening. This can't be real. Can you imagine them hiding now, thinking at every sound, it's the mob coming for me next. Suddenly they were afraid to be identified with Jesus. Again, Peter and his boldness, we'll find out in the text to come, he just goes right into the courtyard where Jesus is being tried inside. Somebody saw him in the garden, probably saw him chop Malchus's ear off and accuses him. No, 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 that wasn't me. I, I can imagine Peter, when we get there, I can imagine, you know, they say, Peter, we, we hear your accent, you're Galilean. I ain't no Galilean. I don't talk like him. He would deny it. No, whatever he had to do to hide who he was. But now Jesus is abandoned. He's turned over to be tried. He's interviewed by Caiaphas, then he's by Anna, sent to Caiaphas, and then before the Sanhedrin, just as the morning breaks. Verse 57, when those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together, but Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. This was the only reason he was there, so that they could find a reason to declare that he was guilty of a crime worthy of death so that he could be handed over to the Romans and put to death. You know, by the way, it's interesting that they were so cautious here because, you know, they weren't so cautious with Stephen. Paul should not have overseen the stoning of Stephen. That should have gone through the Roman officials. But the action was so quick and visceral against what Stephen was preaching, they picked up stones and as a mob, they killed him and Paul was the one who represented the authority of the Jews to do so. That, that would not have been legal either by any stretch. But, but with Jesus, they were going to let the Romans do it because, you know, everybody hates the Romans anyway. And since the people think he's a prophet, let's find a reason to turn him over to the Romans and let the Romans take the blame. Everybody wants everybody else to be blamed for who killed Jesus. You know, the Bible puts that to rest, by the way. You know who killed Jesus, don't you? Now, immediately everybody says it was us. No! It was Jesus. He laid down his life. It was not taken from him. 
Now, that doesn't stop Peter from standing up full of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and saying, this Jesus whom you took by lawless hands and crucified, God has raised up. Because in reality, we are all to blame, aren't we? It was Jonathan Edwards and several others that quoted him. What is it that we contributed to our salvation? Only the sin that made it necessary. It was our sin that required he be nailed to the cross. So yes, we are responsible. They seized him. They took him to Caiaphas. You remember that we talked about Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was the high priest. His son or son-in-law Caiaphas then followed him because Annas was removed by the Romans. Caiaphas ruled for decades in that position because he was such a smooth working politician. Once he died, he was then replaced and there were 20 something others after him in just a few years, one after another, the Romans couldn't keep anybody there. Remember though, to the Jews, the high priest was appointed for life. So even though they had removed Annas and put Caiaphas in, in the Jewish mind, Annas was still the boss behind the boss. So they both have a role to play. They've got the scribes, they've got the elders, so the scribes are the lawyers, and the elders, the Sanhedrin, they're already gathered. Now, imagine this. They were called, and this, this is more than likely, this is about three in the morning, from what we can tell on the gospel timetable. This, this betrayal and arrest happened between one and three in the morning. And it's getting ready to be the day before Passover, and the whole Sanhedrin, or at least a majority, a quorum of them, are gathered. And they're ready to go. The Sanhedrin was composed of 71 men, 23 priests, 23 scribes, 23 elders, and two officers. When they held a trial, especially for capital crimes, it was mandated by law that that trial had to take time, had to take place in the daylight between the morning and evening sacrifices, between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. So if you had a capital trial, you couldn't start till 9 a.m. and you had to finish for the day at 3 p.m. That trial could not be held on the day before a festival or a Sabbath. That trial had to occur in one of only three specified courtrooms. And the high priest quarters where they're taking him now is not one of those. The trial had to begin with hearing the defense, not the accusers. But even in that, the accused was not required to testify was not required to say a word. Throughout the course of the trial, as we're going to read about what happens, think about how much of this didn't happen. Because in a trial before the Sanhedrin, the judges were not to make the accusations, but were actually to seek to actively defend the accused person in case they were preserving an innocent life against a false charge. To bring the death penalty, there had to be at least two witnesses, and they had to exactly agree in every point of their testimony. That's Old Testament law book of Deuteronomy. A majority vote was required of the Sanhedrin to convict, but there was a safeguard there. A unanimous vote was invalidated. If that many people agree on it, you're probably wrong. So it's not going to be a mob movement or a unanimous action. There had to be some question about the guilt and innocence of the person being tried. If you were declared guilty, you could not be sentenced on the same day that you were declared guilty. It had to be the next day. The accused was not required to testify. And the high priest was mandated to remain completely silent during the entire trial and only voted last after all the other votes of the Sanhedrin had been taken so that the high priest would not influence the vote. Now let's read about the trial. 
The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. So they need to find two liars who agree. They didn't find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I'm able to destroy the sanctuary of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up, who's supposed to be silent and doesn't have a vote until the end. The high priest stood up and said, do you not answer? What have these been testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I put you under oath by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you yourself said it. So here's a trial at night. It is not between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. It was the day before the Passover was to be observed. That was against the law. It had to occur in a specific courtroom, and it was not in a courtroom. It was in the high priest's quarters. It had to begin by hearing from the defense, and Jesus was not asked to speak first, and no defense was given for him. The accusers started by asking for false witnesses. The judges were not supposed to accuse, but to seek to defend the accuser. None of them stood up to defend Jesus. Two witnesses had to agree on all points. We read that there were multiple false witnesses. And by the way, Mark tells us even these two that gave this testimony, this testimony is not true. Because Jesus never said, I'm able to destroy the sanctuary of God and rebuild it in three days. John 2, 19. What did Jesus say? Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. In grammar, that's called an understood you. Jesus said, you destroy this temple, my body. And in three days, it'll be raised again. I will raise it again. So even their testimony was incorrect. They didn't agree. The witnesses couldn't agree. A majority vote was required. In order to get the majority vote, here the high priest speaks out and talks to Jesus and forces him to answer. After he answers, we'll find out that he was declared guilty. They declared him a blasphemer and sentenced him to death. And in the morning at the breaking of the dawn, sent him to Pilate to be tried there so that he might be put to death. All of this completely illegal. You would have thought he, Jesus would have started a petition or a GoFundMe or something. I mean, this just wasn't right. This is not the way this is supposed to happen. But the people in charge knew this. Caiaphas knew this. To the point that when Jesus kept silent, which by the way also is in fulfillment of scripture. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. If you've never watched it, I would encourage you, those of you who have seen this, you know, go, go, go Google some videos of sheep being sheared. As they're getting ready to be sheared, they are bleating and they are not happy and they don't want to be there, even though it's for their own good. I love it that PETA put out an ad a couple of years ago about how cruel it was to kill sheep just for their wool. Shearing the sheep doesn't kill the sheep. And in fact, as soon as you put them in a position to begin shearing them, they're silent and they're still. And you can shear them. They have competitions at the rodeo. You can shear a sheep in about four seconds flat. Sheep is not impressed. But here Jesus is silent. He doesn't say a word. And that pushes Caiaphas to demand an answer. To demand an answer of a man who by law should not have to say anything. He says, I put you under oath by the living God. This is a formulation of an oath from the Old Testament, not the oath that Jesus denies in Matthew 5. This is the oath 
as God lives, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. As God lives, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Now, this is how crafty Caiaphas was. He had to ask this question exactly like this to get the desired outcome. Because if he had asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? If Jesus had said yes, the council would have been, that's not blasphemy. Time will tell. Dozens of people before this had claimed to be the Messiah. And they all ended up dead and not raised and not raising an army. They were all discredited. So if Jesus had yes, said, yes, I'm the Messiah, that's not blasphemy. If Caiaphas had asked, are you the son of God? Jesus could have said yes there too without committing blasphemy. He could have quoted Psalm chapter 82, verse 6. I said, you are gods and all of you are sons of the most high. Any of them could have claimed to have been a son of God. That was not blasphemy. That was not something worthy of death. Jesus even had pointed this out in John 10. Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? Jesus had already argued against this. You can't say I'm blaspheming when I say I'm the son of God. Unless you accuse David of blasphemy and all the others. But what's the significance here? The question, as God lives, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? The way that phrase is put together, this is not just a claim that I am the Messiah or that I am a Son of God. It is, I, it is that I am the Messiah, God. To claim it in this phrase, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Messiah who is the Son of God, is a question of a matter of Jesus's divinity. Are you claiming to be equal with God? Because that's blasphemy. Blasphemy is not, not just misuse of his name. That's somebody claiming to be God who's not. You understand, that's, that's why they had tried to kill him before. That's why they had tried to stone him before. They knew he was claiming to be God. The Jewish non-believing crowd understood that. Why should we be shocked when people say, Jesus never claimed to be God? The people who heard him sure thought that he did. And now he's asked a question that if he answers in the affirmative, will be blasphemy. If Jesus is not God. So Jesus didn't have to answer. But he does. Put under oath like this, he does. Because if this fact is not established, they can't put him to death. Jesus said to him, you yourself said it. Now, the way this is recorded for us in the other Gospels, again, this is an I am statement. We read it in John 18, 5. They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene, where he had said in the garden, I am now on trial. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Jesus said in Mark 14, 62, I am. And in Luke 22, 7, they said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you yourselves say that I am. But he doesn't leave it there. In Matthew's account, 
And in fact, in the other accounts as well, he goes on and he quotes Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You see, Jesus doesn't just say, you've said it. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Are you claiming equality with God? He didn't just say yes. Jesus then uttered a statement that can only be taken to be that he condemned himself to death. He says, you yourself said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The word hereafter, it can be said this. From this moment on, when you look at me, you're looking at God. That's the statement. The verses in Daniel, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This Messiah, the Son of God, predicted and prophesied in Daniel, is God himself coming to intervene on behalf of his people. This is a statement of the divinity of the Messiah. The Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and shares in His glory, His dominion, and His kingdom. He's given the same authority as the Ancient of Days. Jesus, by quoting this, removes all doubts in the room. He says to them, not only I am, but then He quotes the prophet Daniel, making the claim, yes, I am God. This verse is, in fact, is so significant. In two weeks, next week, you can hear Brother James preach on the union, on union with Christ. The week after that, I'm coming back to preach one message just on verse 64. Because Jesus here so stridently condemns himself that the only thing they could do was say, you're a blasphemer. There's no escaping the truth about who Jesus is. He is not hiding who he is. And we know that they were afraid that he was right. Because what did they say? As soon as he was crucified, they went to Pilate. And they said, what? He said he was going to be raised on the third day. Can we seal the tomb? Can we put guards on the tomb? We can't let the disciples steal his body and vindicate what he said. Because what he said was that he would be raised. They knew exactly what he meant when he said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. They knew exactly what he meant. They knew who he was. This is not the high priest trying to preserve a Judaism that worships the God of the Bible. This is a corrupt system of sinful men that hated Jesus because they were lovers of darkness rather than the light. And their goal was simply to kill him and believe that if they could just kill him and keep him in the grave, they could go on uninterrupted in their sin. Jesus gave them no choice. He condemned himself. This, this just, it reverberated in my brain when I was driving in this morning. What does Romans 8, 1 say? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk in the spirit, not after the flesh. You know why there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ? Because Christ condemned himself for us. He was innocent. He was perfect. He was holy. He is God. And he threw himself to the wolves to be put to death. 
He made sure of it. They couldn't escape it. They had to declare him guilty. Because if he was not who he said he was, he was a blasphemer. The high priest tore his garments. You know, by the way, it's also against the law, right out of the Old Testament, right out of the book of Leviticus, for the high priest ever to tear his garments. Tearing of the garments was pretty common for mourning, for grief. People would tear their garments. Leviticus 21 says, The priest who is the highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured, and who has been ordained to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes, nor shall he approach any dead person, nor defile himself, even for his father or mother. The high priest, even if your mom or dad dies, you cannot tear your clothes. Caiaphas tore the high priestly garments. I think I know why he did that. Because now he's standing in the presence of the true high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The high priest who had come to offer himself a sacrifice to establish a new covenant. A high priest who was not a phony and a politician, but who was a prophet, a priest, and a king. Caiaphas couldn't stand in his presence without being driven to madness. He tears his garments. He declares he has blasphemed. What further need do we need of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. The high priest who was supposed to remain silent through the entire trial now pronounces judgment on Jesus. What do you think, he asks. He should have been the last to vote, but now what do they all say? Unanimously, he deserves death. This devolved very quickly because then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, O Christ, who is the one who hit you? Jesus was now beaten and mocked. With this reaction from the high priest and from the Sanhedrin, we know from the other gospel accounts, they blindfolded Jesus and they hit him. They struck him. They pulled out his beard. All of this to fulfill prophecy. Isaiah 50 verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from dishonor and spitting. Their hatred from him, for him, was it such a fervor that they actively began to mock him, calling him Messiah. Oh, Christ, prophesy. Who is the one that hits you? Charles Spurgeon says, can you imagine they were spitting in their creator's face? And we would never do that. We would never betray Jesus with a kiss. We would never spit in his face. But don't we every time we doubt him? You know, to doubt God's to call him a liar. To, to, ask, to ask Jesus, why did you let this happen? Now, I will say, it's not wrong to ask God why, but you better be careful how you phrase it. And I will say it's not wrong to ask him why, because his son from the cross asked him, why have you forsaken me? But there's a difference between asking a question and making an accusation. And to accuse God of any kind of evil motive or unholiness. To accuse God of not treating us like we deserve. Please, please don't ever ask God to treat you like you deserve. Don't do it. Because it's hot and it's forever. 
All we deserve is wrath. But because Jesus endured this for us, we've been given grace. We've been given mercy. We've been given pardon. So that there's going to come a time that the accuser is going to come against us. And make accusations against us. And the reality is when Satan accuses us, he doesn't even have to make it up and lie, does he? Spurgeon said he knows whenever the devil accuses him, he knows the devil doesn't know half the story. Spurgeon himself knows, I've done worse than you can imagine. But whatever accusation you bring, this was Martin Luther as well, Martin Luther's response, I'm thankful when the devil accuses me because I can take every accusation and lay it at the feet of Christ who bore the penalty for every one of my sins. For Christ to be subjected to this, to be so determined to die, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. You understand that he did this not merely so that he could make salvation a possibility. I love it. I believe it was James White that said, if Jesus' death only makes salvation possible, if no one ever got saved, Jesus could have failed at the cross. No, when he went to the cross, he went to do what he said he came to do. To bring forgiveness for the sins of many. To offer himself a sacrifice for the sins of many. Jesus didn't come to potentially save us through his suffering. He came through his perfect life and suffering and death and resurrection to actively save his people. To stand in our place and to take what we deserved. To take it willingly by condemning himself so that they had no choice but to put him to death. So that the scriptures would be fulfilled. That is an amazing change from the garden just a few hours before, isn't it? If there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. What we find at this trial is Jesus grabbing that cup to drink it down to the very last drop. Remaining silent until he was by oath ordered to speak. And in speaking identifying himself for exactly who he is. From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. For Jesus to declare, you are looking at God and condemning him to death. And that's exactly what the chief priest wanted. We cannot underestimate the hatred that the world has for Jesus. Now, Jesus has been remade over and over throughout history, hasn't he? False Christ, different Jesuses. I'd have seen it last week if you watched the Super Bowl. Somebody said it was the Super Bowl. It's fitting. If you watched the commercials that presented a Christ who did things that Christ in the Bible would never do, <laughs> that said things that Christ never said. And, and the question, why would somebody spend millions and millions of dollars to capture the attention of a nation and tell them about Jesus who isn't Jesus and can't save anybody. Why not preach the gospel? I'll tell you why. Because the world does not want to hear the gospel. And when they do, they will react against it. 
The sad reality is how many in the church, when they actually hear the gospel, argue with you and don't like it and don't want to hear it and react. It's because left to ourselves, we hate Jesus. We sang this morning, my Jesus, I love thee. My Jesus, I love thee. There's only one way that we know that we can love him. It's because he loved us first. Because he bore the penalty for our sin. Because he stood in as our substitute. When you realize what he saved us from. He saved us from the wrath of God. He saved us from the penalty of sin. He saved us from judgment forever in the lake of fire. But he didn't just save us from something. He saved us to the glory of the Father, for the glory of his name. He saved us to walk in righteousness and good works and to be pleasing to him and to magnify his name. He freed us from death and he freed us from sin. He freed us to have joy even in the midst of sorrow. You see, Jesus, in letting himself be taken and killed, bought our freedom. He's redeemed us with his life. We think about the illegality of the trial, and I know people have written about it, and they've thrown a fit. How could they let this happen? <laughs> they didn't let anything happen. Jesus already told us beforehand when he was addressing Peter why it was happening, so that the scriptures would be Fulfilled. And brothers and sisters, aren't we glad that they were? That Jesus died and was raised on the third day and has given us full pardon for our sin. Yeah, we're going to struggle with it until the day we die or are glorified. We're going to struggle with the fact that we're sinful and the more we walk with Christ, the more of our own sin we see. But here is the great and the glorious news of the gospel. He paid it. He paid it all. The debt's been wiped out. It's not just covered. It's not just forgiven. It's paid in full on our behalf by somebody else so that we now stand before God with no sin debt at all. And on top of that, by the way, but wait, there's more. He's given to us by faith all of his righteousness. So it's not just that God looks at us now and says, my son paid for all that. You can come in. No, he looks at us and he says, my son paid for all that and everything that was his, he gave to you. So I see you now like I've always seen my son, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, well done, good and faithful servant. Praise God for this illegal trial where Jesus condemned himself so that we could be set free. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for your grace and your mercy this morning, for the depth of your love for us. That you would send your son not only to endure this, but to know that this was what had to happen, because this is what had been prophesied. To know that he went willingly and even joyfully, despising the shame. He went to glorify your name and to save your people by becoming a substitute for them under your wrath. To do so, he willingly declared in open court that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Father, we confess this morning that for us is not blasphemy by any means, 
It is the glorious truth of the good news that our Savior, Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is God with us. How we thank you that you did not leave us on our own, but that you sent your only begotten Son to come and to redeem us from our sin. How we thank you for his finished work on Calvary. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.